Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And uh, we're coming to a point in time where it's this amazing reality that um, maybe you didn't realize as you were getting up and you were driving here this morning. And that's the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. We're all about Jesus here. He's, he is our Lord. He is our King. And approximately 2,000 years ago, his ministry begins with a guy by the name of John, who will be known as John the Baptist. And this beginning was not just something that was made up. It wasn't a random philosophy that was made up as is, happens today. It didn't uh, have its origins in man at all. It was foretold in prophecy. And as John begins to, to preach and begin his ministry preparing the way for Jesus, he fulfills that prophecy. And if you've ever thought about prophecy or been in, maybe talk, uh, been invited to prophecy conferences or maybe just your own concept of what prophecy is, it will probably change this morning. A lot of people have a tremendous amount of misunderstanding about prophecy and how it works and how all that happens in Scripture. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what we saw just a little bit earlier, uh, a baptism and a beginning of a baptism and where that comes from and how that began to occur. And then finally, the ministry and the proclamation of John. What was he proclaiming and how does that apply today? But above all of this, um, as we begin to dig in here, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're still trying to figure out whether you believe in Jesus or not, please understand the Bible is one of the most well-attested historical documents in existence, bar none. There's no debate about that within secular history or within religious history. And this scripture or the Bible that we're about to read is a historical document. It is making historical claims about certain things during certain times. And it begins our passage this morning with a very specific setting within a very specific region and time. So let's, let's begin by reading through the passage quickly, and then we'll go back verse by verse. It says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Idurea and Trachonitis, and Lys, um, Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be ma become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So we're going to go pretty deep here today. We're going to look at a lot of things, and I want to just challenge you to follow with me, because today is going to be more teaching than preaching, and that's actually incredibly important in the church. There are a lot of people who are immature in their knowledge and faith, and our challenge as a church is to help you to mature. So I want you to really, really think and follow along as best you can today. So beginning back in verse 1, it says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
If you're not familiar with ancient history, Caesar was the ruler of the Roman Empire. He ruled from approximately somewhere around A.D. 1114, and this is 15 years after that beginning. And we're going to go through these, these specific names. There are seven names here, and we're going to come to a date. And this date is how Dr. Luke really timestamps the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Then we have Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Pontius Pilate ruled from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. And if you've been with us for a few months, at one point I talked about how certain things don't become um, known for quite some time. In other words, occasionally the Bible will mention a place, a person, or a city that is completely unknown in history. And then some point in time we find an archaeological a piece of evidence, and we're like, wow, that verifies the veracity and the truthfulness of Scripture. Well, this happened with Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was known outside the Bible in only a couple places, and they were recorded uh, within those documents, and quite frankly, most historians did not believe Pontius Pilate existed at all. They believed that it was a fairy tale made up. Yet in 1961, we find an archaeological rock, a tablet, with Pontius Pilate being ascribed to being the governor. So in 1961, even almost 2,000 years later, we're still finding evidence that verifies the historical account of the Bible. So Pontius Pilate was, being, was governor of Judea, and we're going to look at a map just in a minute uh, where you can kind of begin to visualize where this is occurring. Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother. So Herod, this Herod is also in the Bible referred to as Herod Antipas. He ruled from about 4 BC to AD 39. Philip Tetrarch of the region of Idaria and Traconius, he reigned about, oh, somewhere at the time of AD 34. Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. We really know nothing of Licinius. And, and Abilene seems to be an area to the north during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. These are individuals you'll hear about later in the gospel. They are high priests. They are fulfilling an office that is very unique, but much like our president today. So when we have former presidents, we don't address them as former President Obama, for instance. Uh, you still address former presidents as Mr. President. And this is the same reality in the Bible. You have two high priests. One is officially Caiaphas, but Annas, his father, still has great influence and is referred to as the high priest. Where is all this going? Well, let's just take a look real quickly um, at a map. Whoa, what happened? We had a map. I think uh, I'm battling here. There we go. All right, all right. So on the right is a map uh, with the same map as on the left, except the red lines indicate modern nations. And so if you can better visualize with modern nations, those are written in red, from Jordan to Israel and Syria and Syria. And this is somewhat important if you're looking on the right. The area that we're going to be talking about today is mostly in the nation of Jordan, as well as the Golan Heights and Syria. You don't, uh, if you travel to Israel today, you don't get to go there. You have to go to a different nation. And so what we're going to focus on today is the blue in the middle. So at the bottom, you have the Dead Sea. Above that, you have a little river that's covered in red. You can see it better on the left-hand side. 
And then you have the Sea of Galilee, and to the north of that, another river, a little lake, and some three little rivers uh, that are flowing out of that. The focus this morning is where it says Syria, Tetrarch of Philip, Decapolis, and Perea, and a little bit above Syria. These are the areas in which John the Baptist ministered. Now, I have a confession to make. Most of the, the images that I've showed you in the past on my sermons have been fairly accurate. I've got a little today, but I forgot my camera on the key day in which I visited some of these areas. So the slide that I, I begin with is this. As you look out, this is looking into the Jordan Valley, and then it rises into the desert. This is real place, real time, about 2,000 years ago. And you can see it's quite wilderness. There's not a lot out there. It's really rough. But I mention to the north, above the Sea of Galilee, where those three little rivers came in, well, there's one river that begins that turns into the Jordan. It's the only river today within the um, nation of Israel where it begins in Israel, and it's this river. It flows out of the uh, area called Tel Dan. It's beautiful. The Jordan, as it flows through the valleys, becomes quite ugly. It's pretty nasty, uh, but it's, it's like any river here in eastern Oregon. Absolutely clear water, cool. It's wonderful. It's not what you think of typically when you think of the wilderness. So that's kind of the scene and the setting of where we're at today. It was roughly... 28 AD, plus or minus a year. So how did I come up with that? Well, here's the deal. There's a lot of variations in dating because there were four different calendars in effect during this period of time. You had the Julian calendar, you had the Jewish calendar, you had a Macedonian calendar, and then uh, you also had an Egyptian calendar. So, and they all began at different times, but roughly... What we're talking about happening is Jesus' ministry with John the Baptist begins in 28 AD, plus or minus a couple years. So if you're a Bible student, write that down. 28 AD in the area around the Sea of Galilee, and it says this in, in verse 2, second half. It says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Well, I've got another slide. As a matter of fact, I mentioned baptism uh, here this morning, and we're going to be talking about baptism. When I was in Israel, I did have a chance to catch a baptism that kind of went wrong. Uh, here it is. Uh, it, they weren't sure if they were going to dunk him, so they just decided to drag him through the water. Now, <laughs> the reason why I'm showing you this, it, it was, one, it was really awkward. We think the Bible and just it's so religious. But as real people, real places in real time today, this is the Sea of Galilee, and they're out there, they're tubing on the Sea of Galilee today where Jesus walked. It's kind of surreal, but it was beautiful out there. But here's where I wanted to, the reason why I'm showing you this picture is you can see the imagery in the back. That's the beginning of the wilderness. That's, that's right there to the east of the Sea of Galilee looking out. It's not exactly a fun place to go out and hear a sermon, right? You have the nice coffee, the comfy chairs, the warm building here today. Can you imagine trekking out there on foot to hear a guy yelling at you? So yeah, it, it was quite different and it was amazing. John the Baptist had this incredible ministry. And so he begins and it says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zachariah, in the wilderness. So let's review who John is. Let's go back just a few pages. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. 
28 AD, around the Sea of Galilee, in the wilderness, where John begins. And this is what is recorded about John. Luke chapter 1, verse 15. Not the apostle John, John the Baptist. It says this, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So John the Baptist that we're speaking with is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, in going before the Lord, in the spirit and a power of Elijah. So John the Baptist will be a prophet like Elijah. Elijah is one of the most influential prophets in the entire Bible. So John is going to be this incredible prophet filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? To turn the hearts of fathers to children and the disobedient to wisdom and, uh, of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John's ministry is going to be preparing the people for Jesus. Turn just a little further to uh, chapter 1, verse 76. Reinforcing this. Chapter 1, verse 76. He says, And you, child, referring to John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So John, without doubt, is a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah, filled with the Holy Spirit. For he will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. How? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So this isn't just some place that John the Baptist went, gave a sermon, and went home. He was living in the wilderness. That was his area. And he began to preach approximately 28 A.D. Well, what did he do? Why was he there? Well, first of all, notice this. This is this incredible reality that we just read, and, and sometimes people pass by it. We just read an account of some of the most powerful individuals in the world at the time. The Word of God didn't come to any of those individuals. Not the ruler of the Roman Empire, not the high priest of Israel. It came, it came to John the Baptist, who was this humble guy living in the wilderness. And I want to pause there for a second because so many people sometimes come to church on a Sunday morning and they think about who they are, their background. They're like, well, I'm nobody. I've done this wrong and I've done that wrong. And why would God care about me? And, and quite frankly, I'm not even sure about all of this. I mean, is there a God? And you need to know this. I don't care who you are, how insignificant you think your life is. God almost always uses individuals like that rather than the proud and the rich. He chooses the humble and the poor time and time again throughout his entire recorded history. So if you are sitting here and you don't think God can use you, think again. You have far more wealth and far more comfort than John the Baptist ever had in his ministry. And God 
used John in this amazing way to prepare the way of salvation. So, next up we have, as it is written in the book, the words of Isaiah the prophet. So, in the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So let's talk about this for a minute. We saw baptism today. We saw the area in which John baptized, but what is baptism? We're not going to go real deep there because, quite frankly, we're going to cover something a little deeper, and that's prophecy. But baptism is simply this. Number one, where did baptism begin? The answer is, ready, write this down, we have no clue. There are lots of things in the Bible that just appear that God uses and we don't have a clue. Like the synagogue, you read about synagogues all the time. There's nothing in the Old Testament that commands the building of a synagogue. It just arrives during um, pretty much the exile. So baptism, right here where you read it, is the first time we see it in Scripture, chronologically speaking. And so it is this very odd thing of basically submerse, uh, submersing people in water. But it was this picture. And God gives John what is called a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's out there in the desert yelling at people, coming, they're actually paying attention to his message, and they're wanting to respond. And this was a public response. It's not the same baptism as today. Baptism changes slightly in the New Testament, but it arises we don't know where. What was it about? It was about submersion. It was being uh, this very powerful symbol of dying to your old ways or stopping what you once were doing and rising out of this death or this old way into a new way of life. I get this question a lot, and sometimes I don't answer it right, and it is, what is repentance? What does that really look like? especially when I'm talking about how do you really trust Jesus? How do you repent and turn from your sins? It seems so simple just to pray and ask God to do that. And they're like, do I have to do something more for repentance? Well, true repentance is turning away from your old way of life and following a different way. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it, there is a change in direction. You're not constantly going back and, and living the old way of life. That's not it. And you'll see in the message uh, next week, in the coming weeks, where we really look at what John is preaching, it has to do with producing fruit. Bear fruit. So in other words, you can't just give lip service to repentance. So John is preaching this repentance. And why should you repent? To have your sins forgiven. Very, very clear in Scripture. You must repent in order to have your sins forgiven. And that repentance looks like a change in life. So much so, like I just said, what we witness today in baptism, it's this idea that you're no longer the same person. So, baptism. We'll get into it even more in the coming weeks, but it is simply being submersed in water as a symbolic picture of a change in your life. Here it is the baptism of John, and he is doing so in the region around Jordan, and it is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And notice this, the word for here, you wouldn't think that's very important. Let me ask you to picture it in your mind. Anyone here ever seen a Western? 
Ever seen a wanted poster? All right, in your mind, think about it like this. You're looking at a wanted poster, and on the wanted poster, it says, wanted, Jesse James, $500 reward for bank robbery. Now, let me ask you, is that an employment ad? No, it's a wanted poster. He's wanted for something done in the past, not a future action. So we're baptized and we are forgiven. In other words, we repent. And so we are baptized for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, baptism is a response to a past action. So baptism itself, that's not how you get forgiven. So you're not baptized for the repentance of sin. Some people get confused. Today, some people claim baptism is how you get saved. We're going to dunk you and you're saved. That would be kind of cool, right? It's like, oh, if that's all I got to do, I don't have to follow the Lord. I don't have to turn around. I don't have to do any of that. Just dunk me. There'd be a long line around the block, right? So it's not baptism for the repentance of sins. You're not getting dunked for that. It is baptism. Why? Because you have repented and been forgiven of your sins. Therefore, you want to make this public proclamation. So if that makes it a little more confusing, I'm sorry. That's the best I can do at this point. All right, now if you weren't already confused, things are going to get a little dicey here for you. It says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. We've talked about prophets a couple times. Let me begin this by just saying, it's going to be like drinking from a fire hose. I'm just giving you that up front. But this has tremendous application. How many of you living in Baker, and I believe you probably all have because I get it every year, receive a kind of a flyer, almost a sales piece in the mail that invites you to a prophecy conference here locally? How many of you have received that? Well, none of you are checking your mail because it's been going out every year for several years. This idea of prophecy is huge today. There's all sorts of ideas about what a prophet is, how it operates, is it still active, who do I believe? This is a big, big deal. In this church, right after we opened this building, I was walking out after the service, shaking people's hands, talking to someone, and this lady comes up and she goes, I operate in the realm of the prophetic. I'm like, Oh, really? I thought we were here at church. And she begins to say some really weird stuff to me. It was kind of generic. I'm like, what is going on here? And then she just walks away. You see, there are, to, there are individuals today that believe prophecy and prophets still exist. It's ongoing. And this is a big, big deal, especially here in our area, because there are groups of people that believe like biblical prophets, writing prophets, still exist. One of those is LDS, Mormons. They believe Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God, just like Isaiah, just like John the Baptist. Seventh-day Adventists, again, they have their prophets. There are a number of churches that have prophecy, but not quite that kind of prophet in it today. Some Southern Baptist churches, uh, lots of uh, neo-Calvinist churches, lots of, of churches here on the West Coast, about... I would say the majority of churches that you walk into today, into today believe in the ongoing gift of prophecy. So we're going to look at this. And I, I want you to understand, I can't go really deep into this. I'm giving you a thumbnail sketch 
I'm giving you a very, very small thumbnail sketch of what prophets are biblically, how it's kind of changed, and some of the things that you might want to consider. So first off, and the colors don't mean anything, it's just to help your eyes so you can follow and not get lost. It says, prophets are individuals inspired by God speaking on God's behalf. We find both men and women in Scripture as prophets. So this is the biblical definition of prophets, or at least it was for about 1,900 years. Notice this. This doesn't require someone to make a prediction about the future in very specific ways. Most people think about that. Like if I'm going to tell you a prophecy, you're going to be looking for me to, to make a claim about something in the future that's going to happen, and if it doesn't come to pass, then you're going to call me a, a wacko, a nut, a false prophet. That's not what biblical prophecy is all about. That sort of prophecy is less than 1% in the Bible. So think about that. If that's how you were thinking about prophecy, biblical prophecy is a lot different. It functioned alongside Scripture in the Bible. As we read in the Bible, you had Scripture, not all of it. In the New Testament, they had the Old Testament. But you had prophets along with Scripture. Think about it. If you're in the, in the Bible time, for instance, this is 28 AD, you don't have all of God's Word like you do today. So you needed additional prophets to guide the nation, to guide you in your faith. Think about, imagine if you removed the entire New Testament how lost would you be? So they had prophets. Their words were not considered inspired in everything they said. In other words, as they were given the grocery list to their wife, that wasn't inspired, right? That wasn't, that's never the idea in Scripture that everything someone said as a prophet was of God in that sense. That becomes important. Some prophecy was kept as Scripture. Other prophecies were not. Once again, we have no idea why or how they chose certain prophecies versus others. And I've given this example multiple times. We know within Scripture, the Scripture that we have, the letters to the Corinthian church, there were at least four. We only have two. It's not like we lost them. The early church just simply heard God speaking in two, and they did not keep the others. And we have no idea why. And that becomes really important in just a moment in how we deal with modern-day prophecy because we don't have access. We have no idea how they made that judgment. Finally, historic Christianity believes that the canon of Scripture, the Bible that you have in your, your hands, is closed, absolutely closed. If you have Catholic friends, they added some additional books or voted to add some additional books at the Council of Trent in the 1500s. But, but as far as... Protestants, same 66 books since 2,000 years ago. At least some part of prophecy ceased in that respect when the apostles passed away. So most, even people, like I mentioned, Southern Baptist churches and some other uh, mainline and Protestant churches today believe in the gift of prophecy. They don't believe that the Bible is still open. It's closed. They don't really give an explanation as to why that is, but they don't hold to that view. Very important. So that's a prophet in the Bible. Might be what you were thinking, might not, but then there's also false prophets the Bible talks about. Well, this becomes important, especially if we're wondering whether or not there's still prophets around. Are they false prophets, true prophets? Well, individuals who claim to be inspired by God speaking on God's behalf. Same definition. 
that they're not going to say, hey, I'm a false prophet, come listen to me, right? You have to figure this out. Are there really true prophets and are, or are they false prophets? They function alongside scripture in the Bible. The Bible records a lots of false prophets. In the Old Testament commands, prophets were to be tested. If their prophecy doesn't come to pass, they must die. So it's a pretty serious thing. <laughs> Now, granted, there was a lot of penalties that required death in the Old Testament. God is pretty strict, right? But this is serious. A false prophet in the Old Testament, the penalty was death. He was more than likely to be stoned to death. And then in the New Testament, both Jesus and John, both before the resurrection and after the resurrection, they predict there will be false prophets to come. And this prediction doesn't go away. This this command. So there's no expectation that there will be an end to false prophets. We're going to get to a reality in the Bible that we believe, or at least many believe, that there is in Scripture an expectation that true prophecy will cease. But we'll get there. So what is going on? How, what sort of prophet are so many churches engaged in? And how are they thinking about it? And why are they thinking about it? Well, it's here. A growing number of Christians claim that all spiritual gifts in the Bible are active today, including prophecy. Views vary, but the largest is that of the fallible prophet. And what in the world are we talking about here? Well, this lady who kind of accosted me in our lobby a couple of years ago, she didn't expect me to listen to her like I was listening to the Bible. She was just kind of throwing out some sort of idea or something that came to mind, and she called it prophetic. Well, what was she intending? Well, there's this teaching today, uh, according to recent scholars, that the gift that people who claim to be inspired by God on God's behalf, but their message may have a mixture of truth and error. This is a new teaching that came about in the past century. It's popularized by by a guy by the name of Grudem. He wrote a systematic theology. And they point to a guy in the New Testament called Agabus. They claim that his prophecy didn't come to pass as he proclaimed. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. So they claim because of this one example that the gift of prophecy is different than real prophets. And so you just got to figure this out. There's going to be some true stuff and some not true stuff, and it's different. The listener must filter truth from error. And finally here, this prophecy is not on par with Scripture, nor should it be held as Scripture, they claim. And it's claimed these prophecies are helpful in building up. Now that's quite different than what we just read. John the Baptist being a prophet and Isaiah being a prophet. So the big issue is, has it changed? Has prophecy and prophets, have they changed? Is this true? Well, what were some problems with that view? Well, there's serious problems. The interpretation of Agapus's prophecy as errant is unknown within the entire church history until the 1900s. For 1900 years, all of Christianity had no problem with Agabus's prophecy at all. They believed it to be true. Second, the interpretation itself has been refuted by numerous scholars. It ignores the complexity and mystery surrounding prophecy fulfillment. So we're going to pause here and I want you to turn to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 39, because you need to understand this. So most people, when they think of prophecy, once again, they think of, well, 
Bob made a prediction about Sally 20 years from now on a specific event and on a specific date, and that date comes to pass, and if it doesn't happen, the guy's a false prophet. That's the nature of prophecy. Well, you need to understand how difficult prophecy is and how complex it is. So Isaiah chapter 39. Now, for those of you familiar with the text, Luke is quoting Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, but we need to look at context here. I want you to look for the name John the Baptist. Hint, you won't find it, but just to let you know. So here's context. Isaiah 39, verse 5. It says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Isaiah is the prophet, Hezekiah is the king. Hezekiah, hear the words of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which my fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. So the situation is this, it's a little prior to 586 BC when the Babylonians come in and destroy Israel, take them captive and leave. Isaiah is prophesying beforehand that this will happen and he's talking to the king. Well, this is the, uh, the, how it continues on, verse 7. And some of your own sons whom will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah says to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you've spoken is good. <laughs> How you say that's good? You're like, that sounds pretty bad to me. Well, this is his thought. He says, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. <laughs> He's all about himself, right? This is Hezekiah. Then we get chapter 40 and we have this. Comfort, comfort, my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Contextually, do you get John the Baptist out of that? Some 586 years later, plus or minus 30 years? Not at all. As a matter of fact, there are so many guys out there teaching all these prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament, and that is true according to Scripture. But if you just read through the Old Testament, it's not apparently obvious that this is a prophecy about John the Baptist and that will be fulfilled some 600 years later. It is because the New Testament authors are inspired and they give us an indication that yes, this is the prophecy that is being fulfilled. It's not as simple as people make it out to be. So those individuals who were arguing that Agabus' prophecy is false in the New Testament really oversimplify it greatly. Why, once again, is this important? Well, the fact is that we have to figure out if we're going to read the New Testament, if we expect the gift of prophecy to exist, we need to understand what it's about and then finally what John is talking about. So quickly, prophet occurs over 140, time in the New, 140 times in the New Testament throughout the entire New Testament uh, and it seems to indicate that it's simply what we're talking about, Isaiah the prophet. 
Additionally, there isn't a biblically prescribed test to tell us what part of the possible errant prophecy is actually true. So we have no clue. Some people say, well, it aligns with Scripture. Well, if you tell me that, Scott, I'm going to give a prophecy that you're going to love ice cream for the rest of your life. Well, that doesn't contradict Scripture, but I don't know that that's necessarily true. And so just saying, does it align with Scripture, doesn't actually work out. Finally, just how much error is acceptable, if any, before the person is considered a false prophet? Well, I pretty much promise you that lady didn't want me making any judgments on her because she wasn't sure whether or not we would stone her. So she's, she's assuming that some error is acceptable. Well, it's pretty important, but we have no idea how much from their perspectives. Finally, if modern prophecy is true, the Word of God, at least some of it, why shouldn't we hold modern prophecy on par with the Bible? Why shouldn't we add it to the Bible? No one explains this. If someone makes a prophetic statement, why shouldn't we add it to the Bible? There's no reason. At least the part that is true that they claim to be true. There's no reasoning behind that. How is potentially air-filled prophecy actually helpful to anyone? If I tell you a prophecy or claim to be a prophet and it's full of errors, that doesn't build you up. It confuses you. In summary, it simply appears to be an attempt to allow the gift of prophecy to function in the church without opening the canon of Scripture. Finally, what do we believe? Well, it holds, uh, we hold the view that prophecy, as it is in the Bible, ceased. And it ceased and it passed in a very specific way. The historical definition of prophecy and prophets remains true today as it was in the Bible. False prophets continue today as they did in the Bible. Scripture explicitly states prophecies will pass away or cease when the perfect comes. And the controversy is, what does perfect mean? What is it referring to? Quickly, the Greek word for perfect occurs 13 times in the New Testament. It never recur, uh, refers to Christ's second coming. It refers once to the Word of God, specifically in relation to a mirror. We're not going to go down that road, but it's this imagery in both in James and 1 Corinthians that talks about this imagery of looking into the perfect and it reflecting. True prophets and prophecy cease as the complete canon of Scripture comes. And let's finish on this quickly here. What, what really happened? Well, the Bible, according to 1 Corinthians, we believe, as the, the perfect, the Word of God, expands in the New Testament era through that region, those maps that we were looking at. As it expands, prophecy begins to cease. It's not a specific date and time or even a specific location. Scripture just simply says, when it comes. It doesn't say to how many people, to how many towns, to what region. It just simply says when it comes. It could be fully saturated. It could come to one person. We don't know. It's completely open-ended. Technically, in some ways, where the Word of God isn't today, it could still be occurring, yet there are other arguments that suggest that it did pass away when the apostles came. So shortly, in summary, we don't believe that the gift of prophets or real prophets are occurring today. They were for the period of time until the canon of Scripture was completed. But what specifically did the prophet Isaiah say? That's where we're trying to get to, and we'll get there quickly. Turn back to Luke chapter 3. It's a very, very simple message. Luke chapter 3, and we'll close with this. It says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John is out there crying. And you're going to hear, 
It wasn't a soft message. He was yelling at people. He wasn't yelling, you're great. He's saying, you stink. You need to repent. Not exactly a popular message today. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And the interpretive key is verse 6. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's this imagery in this very hilly country that the preparation will be throughout the entire world. That all these valleys and all these mountains will be made level. In other words, it's the imagery of not literally cutting off mountains and filling valleys. But as you would prepare in advance for a king coming, you would make the roads nice and easy. Just like our road graders clean our streets with snow, it was this idea of preparing the way. And the claim here is that all flesh in the world will see the salvation of God. And that applies to you because we're doing that very thing today. We're still a part of that ongoing prophecy. John began, and as we proclaim the gospel throughout the entire world, all flesh will see this salvation. They will see it reflected in our lives, and they will hear it in our voices. You're here today, 2,000 years later, as a part of the ongoing fulfillment of the New Testament commands. John began it. We continue it. The question is, simple application, are you a part of it or are you sitting on the sidelines? Are you opening your mouth and speaking? Are you reflecting it with a change in your life? Or are you just simply one of those individuals that came out to see John just to kind of see what was going on? and then left without change. We're a part of a plan, a specific plan that God laid out from the beginning of time. Do you want to be a part of it, or do you want to sit on the sidelines? I hope and pray God is active in your life, and you're engaged in the kingdom of God this very moment, this very day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the hearts and minds of everyone here. We covered so much ground so quickly, even just in six verses, Lord. But help us to be mature in our faith. Help us to be able to discern truth and error both inside the words that I speak, much less anyone else. But all of the things that are flowing into our life, help us to evaluate them biblically, carefully, to be good Bereans. And let us not just simply be like the Pharisees who were experts in the law. We want to apply it to our lives today, Lord. And if there's anyone here that is engaged in life-dominating sin, before we begin to argue about Scripture, help us to, to see it for ourselves and to truly repent, to come to you humbly for forgiveness, that you would make us clean and new, that we would produce fruit and have changed lives so that people would see Jesus, not just in our words and our message, but in our lives. Amen.